Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. It's a pretty confusing time at the moment on a whole lot of um, levels and for a whole bunch of reasons. So if you were reading The Age the weekend before last and saw that op-ed written by Labor Spokes for Home Affairs, Christina Keneally, um, talking about migration and we're left scratching ahead about what the ALP was signalling to us, um, you'd be forgiven for doing that because it was unclear, are they anti-temporary migration visas now or not? Uh, are they supportive of the kind of migration situation Situation we had pre-pandemic or not. And uh, thankfully, though, Peter Mayers has written a piece for Inside Story, uh, which at least spells out why it was confusing for many of us as we read that article. And I suppose um, unpacking a bit where the ALP might be signalling where they stand on migration. Um, and Peter is a writer, researcher and author of Not Quite Australian, How Temporary Migration is Changing the Nation. He's also a lead moderator in ethical leadership at the Cranlana Institute. And his article really um, goes through a lot of the big issues in this space, highlighting why it is a, an important conversation to have. Um, but starting in a confusing spot, um, maybe not the best place to be. Um, thanks for joining us, Peter. It's always good to have you on Triple R. Pleasure to be with you on the grapevine. And um, I suppose, you know, let's go to the article that people may or may not have read of Christina Keneally and maybe let us know why, you know, why many of us might have been confused by it. Well, I think the starting point was a figure. Um, the, the most confusing thing that, that about the article was that she used a figure of 2.1 million uh, temporary migrants or temporary visa holders being present in Australia. And that figure is confusing because she then went on to talk about temporary migrant workers. And it would have been easy to think that there were 2.1 million temporary migrant workers in Australia. Um, but the 2.1 million figure needs to be unpacked. It's a complicated mix. It included, for example, 200,000 tourists. Uh, so the tourists are on a temporary visa, so they're in that 2.1 million. Now, they don't have work rights. They're, they're not here to work at all. It includes uh, 670,000 New Zealanders. Now, um, that figure's confusing because some of those New Zealanders would be here just for very short-term visits, maybe for business or to see family or to watch rugby if there was any rugby to, to be watched. Um, to go to the Gold Coast, whatever it might be. Um, others of those New Zealanders are essentially permanent residents of Australia if they arrived before 2001 and have been settled here ever since. And then in the middle, there's a bunch of New Zealanders who are, uh, to use my terminology from my book, not quite Australian. They're settled here, but they don't have the rights of permanent residents or citizens. So they are kind of temporary migrants but under the rules of the Trans-Tasman travel arrangement between Australia and New Zealand, they can live here as, as long as they want, so they're not really temporary. Um, so, so, you know, if we take out those two figures, that's 670,000 and 200,000... Uh, 670,000 New Zealanders and 200,000 tourists, we're already almost halving the number we were talking about of 2.1 million. And then in that, in that figure too, there's about... 200,000 people on bridging visas. Now, a bridging visa is something you get while you're waiting for another visa or while you're contesting a decision with the Department of Home Affairs. So you might be in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal waiting on an outcome. There's a backlog of 65,000 cases in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, so people waiting on, on, on outcomes. And a lot of the other people in that category are actually the partners of Australians so their spouses, essentially, or, or their potential spouses or, or lifetime partners. Um, so, you know, they're not, temp they're not temporary workers. They may have work rights, um, but essentially they're, you know, the partners of Australians who plan to settle and, and, and live in Australia. Uh, and then, you know, the other really big group is international students. Now, international students have work rights, um, and but, but they also... You know, they're, they're students, and then there's working holiday makers, and then there's a, a smaller group of specifically temporary skilled workers, uh, of whom there's only about 130,000, and that includes their partners and children. 
So the actual number of temporary skilled migrants who are dedicated skilled migrants here on a temporary visa is, is much, much smaller. So that's why the message is confusing. Is Christina Keneally saying we've got too many students? Is she saying we've got too many New Zealanders? Is she saying we've got too many temporary migrant workers, in which case why use the 2.1 million figure? So I, I, for one, found found the article and what she was trying to say very confusing. Yeah, and, and so there's kind of the, the conflation of, of temporary visa holders and, and foreign workers, and that sort of figure has been sort of picked up by various media outlets without sort of delving into the type of uh, nuance and, and complexity that you've outlined just, just now and in your article as well. But what about the kind of framing of the issue as, uh, you know, these sort of temporary uh, workers taking Australian jobs? Because we know over the past decades that with the rise of, of foreign workers and, and temporary migration becoming much more commonplace throughout Australia, that that's been something that has, you know, uh, been very much part of the, the economic growth that Australia has experienced. Yeah, look, it's, uh, so Senator Keneally in her article said, um, I'm quoting the words now, that, that temporary migration should be reduced or migration should be reduced to ensure that Australians, this is the quote, Australians get a fair go and a first go at jobs. Now, on one hand, you, you can't criticise an Australian politician for saying that Australians should get jobs first. I mean, we, you know, they get elected by Australians, they're there to represent Australians. And in that sense, you know, completely understandable that an Australian politician would be and should be concerned with reducing unemployment in Australia, especially as we enter, um, for Australians, as we enter a long um, a downturn as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But... The way she sets it up, it, it's as if every foreigner, every foreign or every migrant worker who comes to Australia takes a job that an Australian could have. And, and it's, of course, uh, that's what's known as the um, lump of labour fallacy. You know, one job here takes one o away from o over there. It's much more complicated than that. And international students are the best example. There's roughly half a million international students generating something like $38 billion worth of economic activity that includes the money they earn and the money they spend, but it includes, you know, their family members who come to visit while they're here and, and undertake tourism. It includes the, the, the fees they pay to universities that employ lecturers and tutors and all the rest of it. It, employ, it includes the rent they pay, uh, which, you know, goes to Australian landlords and, and, and so on. So to suggest that one temporary visa holder who works takes away a job from one Australian who would otherwise have it is, is just, um, you know, the, the way you can't, it's not an either or, it's not a contest between migrant workers and Australian workers, it's more complicated than that. Now that doesn't mean, and I think it's, you know, we could say, like a lot of international students will work in the same sorts of jobs that young unemployed Australians might want to work in, and they may sometimes outcompete them for those jobs. But without the international students, there'd be far fewer jobs to start with. So that's what I mean by it's a complicated um, scenario. There's no simple fixes here. And I suppose we're not necessarily criticising um, Christina Keneally for raising an important debate, raising it in an op-ed in a newspaper with leaving so many more question marks um, there was, you know, curious, I suppose. But I wonder, you know, with the economy in a pickle right now uh, and it's not clear that we can get uh, workers into the country even if we wanted to, to, to attract more people to work here, you know, let alone students to come and study at our universities in the way that they were before. I mean, where could this conversation go do you think Peter now that it has been somewhat started could it go to a constructive place do you think well I think I think it is absolutely right to revisit big policy areas like migration and I would add you know taxation and housing and, and um, climate change policy and a bunch of others in the light of what the pandemic is, is telling us you know the pandemic is telling us that we are um, destroying you know if we look at um the, the transmission of viruses from uh, animals to humans, as we assume this to be, uh, part of that is linked to habitat destruction and, and so on. So actually we should be seeing the pandemic as part of the bigger um, problem of climate change and habitat destruction and so on, in my view. So the pandemic should lead us to revisit our policy settings. Housing is, is another really big one and one that I, I write about as well. 
So in that sense, I don't think it's wrong at all for Christina Camille to say, well, we might have to rethink migration. And, and my own work was kind of a... So the book that I wrote, Not Quite Australian, was partly saying, look, we've allowed this system to develop, but we haven't really talked about it. You know, since around the late 90s, we've suddenly incrementally introduced lots of different temporary visa categories, and we've shifted from being a country that understood itself as a citizenship-based um, multicultural democracy where people come and become Australians and with all the rights of Australians. Um, and, and, and that's been part of our um, success since the end of white Australia policy. And we're moving away from that to one where lots of people come on temporary visas for quite extended periods of time and don't have access to the same rights um, as, as everyone else. And that, you know, that's something we need to talk about. So I'm all for talking about these things and whether our universities are too dependent on international students. As I saw a tweet from Gwyn Davis, the former Vice-Chancellor of University of Melbourne, said um, more or less that may be true, but we had no choice. You know, there was no other source of funding. So it's not as if we can point the finger at universities and say, well, you shouldn't have had so many international students. That's how they have had to finance themselves because of the way the financing's been set up. So these are, these are linked policy areas as well, but I think it is legitimate. And, and there will be a pause, as you say, Kulia, that there won't be migrants coming. So now is maybe a good time to say, well, let's revisit the settings and decide, you know, how long should someone be temporary? Should temporary migration be a stepping stone to permanent residence? Uh, in most cases, or in some cases, what 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 are the parameters? Those, those sorts of things. Who who? Where, where are the skill shortages that we really need to fill? And where are the failures of our own vocational education and training system uh, that where where we could get you know um, Australians um, who are unemployed into work or who need to shift from a, a dying industry like coal into something else. Speaking with Peter Mayers, uh, all about his piece in Inside Story, Labor's Mixed Migration Message. Peter's an author, researcher and lead moderator at the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership. And it's, it's really timely to be having this conversation, not just because of the sort of large-scale economic challenges that the country is going to be facing and, and the challenges to particular industries, but also given the very real struggles that many uh, you know, temporary migrants or even sort of longer-term migrants are facing at the moment, having lost income and not having access to the types of government support packages that are available to Australian citizens. Do you think this could result in a rethink of just the types of rights that are afforded to migrant workers who stay in, in Australia for an extended period of time and, and whether they you know, should be able to access the types of supports that, that others of us can? Yeah, look, I think that's, um, that was another reason why Christina Keneally's opinion piece was rather surprising because Labor had been prosecuting exactly that argument. Um, Labor had been saying, look, we do need to think about what kind of support we offer to international students and working holiday makers and, and others who don't have access to JobKeeper or JobSeeker payments, uh, who, who still have to pay rent or pay accommodation or, or whatever it is. Um, the suggestion that that they should just go home is, you know, not a particularly helpful one. I think most will go home if they can. But others, you know, maybe they've been here five years, they're near the end of their postgraduate degree. Um, you know, that, there's all sorts of reasons why going home may not be the most appropriate or, or relevant option for them. Um, or they may not be able to go home because of travel restrictions and, and, and so on. Um, so that does, I mean, I think, the crisis, the pandemic has shown up that that this group are, of, of of temporary visa holders are vulnerable in all sorts of ways, and we know about the workplace exploitation, and we know too, you know, that if you don't have job keeper or job seeker to fall back on, and you get sick, you or you know you've got a tickle in the throat, as it's put, you might keep going to work because you need the income, and in fact you may be. Uh, as we've seen in the Meatworks case in Melbourne, perhaps uh, you are actually um, transmitting the virus to, to people along the way. So it's both a, both a welfare and rights issue and it's also a public health issue that we get the settings right in a, in a crisis like this.
And we've heard that coming from other Labor leaders. We heard that um, over the weekend from the spokes on industrial relations and we've heard it from Penny Wong who speaks on international um, issues in uh, foreign relations um, and been asked to kind of explain the the argument put forward by Senator Keneally. And, I mean, I remember Penny Wong was asked to address it and she said, well, you know, what we're really talking about is the exploitation of workers, but we also know that... Australian citizens are also able to be exploited in workplaces. So we're still left with a whole lot of question marks. Do you think this might be ironed out soon that we might actually hear what Labor's um, trying to tell us on this issue, Peter? Yeah, so I don't have any insights into into the internal machinations of the Labor Party, but I, I do wonder whether um, Senator Keneally's opinion piece was aligned with um, the rest of the shadow cabinet, if you like, or if if it was um, more an individual initiative. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I do commend Senator Keneally in her role as opposition spokesperson on, on, on home affairs and immigration for having actually, you know, being willing to... Because to, uh, Labor has tended in, in past years to lay very low on immigration matters because... They're fearful that any mention of immigration simply restarts the um, the kind of reminders from the coalition that Labor restarted the boats under Kevin Rudd, and 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 they don't they see that as something they can never win on. So Senator Keneally has been engaging in in serious discussions around aspects of of policy, and I think that's great. Um, but I, I wonder if this maybe if this opinion piece was. Uh, trying to do two things. It was trying to, on the one hand, spark a discussion about immigration policy and at the same time trying to appeal to uh, an imagined uh, blue-collar Labor uh, base uh, to, to say, you know, we're going to protect your jobs over those those migrants, um, those, those temporary migrants. So, you know, in a, in a way, trying to do two things at once and, and therefore succeeding at neither. Yeah, and I think that idea too that we know that a lot of the, the growth, and you mentioned housing earlier, a lot of the, the growth in housing, particularly in Melbourne, has been people moving interstate to Melbourne and so forth and all things that are very challenging right now. We want to know what the future of what that might look like, particularly people who work on building sites and, in, and construction and so forth. So, um, yeah, fascinating area. And I th- I really commend people to read your piece, Peter, um, Labor's Mixed Migration Message. You can find it in that excellent um, publication, Inside Story Online. Um, you can um, Peter's a contributing editor of that, as well as uh, working with the Kranana Institute for Ethical Leadership. And it's always great to have you on Triple R. Thanks for, for being there. Thanks, Kulia. Thanks, Dylan. A pleasure to join you. And uh, we'll um, no doubt speak to Peter again sometime soon. Hope your day's going well. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And it hasn't been that often recently that we've spoken on this program about something totally new that wasn't prompted by the coronavirus situation. And so it's doubly exciting to meet the feminist in residence from the Queen Victoria Women's Centre this morning. Kate Robinson took up this position last month, or was it six about six weeks ago. Um, she's a community lawyer who supports women through the court system and works across family law, family violence and criminal law. But her particular focus as the inaugural feminist in residence will focus on craftivism. And Kate, it's really great to have you on 3RRR. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And um, how is life as a feminist in residence in, um, <laughs> in a lockdown type situation? Yeah, well, I definitely feel like I'm a feminist in residence at my house. Um, but And I started about six weeks ago. My first day at the centre was when everything was locking down and moving to working from home. So it's definitely not the in-residence that I imagined. But, um, you know, it's exciting in its own way. And so has the the fact that you sort of can't be in, in residence, as I guess would have been planned, changed the nature of the project you're working on? It hasn't really. Um, I guess the idea behind my project, it's called The Feminist Oasis, um, and it's basically about bringing um, a collection of feminist art crowdsourced 
from all over the state together and asking women and gender diverse people to reflect on their complicated relationship with feminism and reflecting on things that they've been silent about um, and then creating a piece of artwork in whatever medium um, they would like and then submitting it to the Oasis. So I guess at this stage I've been doing a lot of that work about thinking about um, what feminist leadership looks like to me and how I want the space to feel and how I want to get um, people from across the state and from outer suburbs um, to, uh, to participate and get involved. So it's actually been quite freeing to have this space to just think and be. Um, so it hasn't changed how it's, um, how it's been at this point, but certainly um, hopefully restrictions ease up in the coming months so that I can do some of the bringing together that I wanted to have as part of the project. <laughs> so like a lot of people, uh, Kate, have you become like an instant expert on all sorts of different video conferencing um, software and the like and tools? <laughs> Um, absolutely. Um, and it's actually been really interesting because I think I've been thinking a lot about um, what life's going to be like afterwards. I think a lot of people have been doing that. And so I've been thinking a lot about how I can make my project as tactile as possible and how I can move it away from the screen as much as possible because I think I'm certainly really sick of looking at my computer and I'm really excited for a time where... I can be just surrounded by other people. And so I've been, at the moment, what I'm working on is basically a little craft kit um, that you'll be able to sign up to receive on the Queen Vic Women's Centre website. Um, and you'll receive that in the post because there's nothing more beautiful than receiving mail um, <laughs> to try and get people involved that way. Because I think my brain is certainly sick of looking at the screen. Um, and so... I want to try and, um, yeah, do a bit more of the paper um, approach for my project. And uh, I read a really interesting um, Q&A with you on the Queen Victoria Women's Centre website all about your role as the feminist in residence. And it's interesting, um, you know, to, to hear about your sort of background in um, regional Australia and, and how that kind of informs the type of approach you're working through with the nature of this project. How do you envisage, I guess, engaging communities outside of Melbourne um, given there may be sort of restrictions around, uh, you know, people gathering in large numbers and that sort of thing? Yeah, so the original idea for my project um, was was to try and have a mobile element, um, to have like a pop-up feminist oasis in a caravan um, that travels to local libraries and community centres and other places. Um, and that's really based on the idea that, um, you know, I live... Um, in the West and I grew up in, the, in country Victoria and I see um, a lot of art in Melbourne as being really city-centric, really city-centric. Um, and growing up there wasn't that much access to art and those kinds of things um, where I was living um, and I know that now for a lot of the women that I work with who live in the outer suburbs, um, there is that same issue. Um, and we know that women from cold communities are, of course, disproportionately represented in the outer suburbs. And if you're living in Tragedina, your ability to get in the, into the city through public transport and that kind of thing um, is really different from someone who's living in Fitzroy or North Melbourne. Um, and so I kind of wanted to break down some of those pockets to access the art um, so that it was, the Oasis was accessible to everyone. Um, obviously, that's all going to be really dependent on how restrictions change in the coming months. Um, but what I'm really hopeful is that, I guess, during this time, while we're still at home and while lockdown's still in place, um, that's a time when hopefully I can get people creating to submit to the Oasis. And so what by the time restrictions have eased, then I'm going to have a beautiful caravan filled with all of this incredible work um, to, you know, basically uh, go around to a lot of different places that don't normally have this strange feminist oasis pop up in their um, local square. <laughs> I love this idea of an oasis. Um, we're speaking with feminist in residence at Queen Vic Women's Centre, Kate Robinson. And Kate, you mentioned right at, at the top of our conversation around um, complicated relationships with feminism. I'd love you to reflect on that. Like what... What do you see or do you have a complicated relationship with feminism? <laughs> I think it's evolving. Um, I think it changes all the time. Um, I don't think 
you know, I wasn't born a feminist. I've slowly become one and I, I'm constantly having really difficult conversations with family and friends about their feminist journeys. Um, I I'm, have a lot of people in my life that, you know, wouldn't wear a T-shirt that says feminist um, but are absolutely living, um, living a feminist life and doing it in the way that... Um, yeah, in the way that they choose um, to, to, to do everything and interact with their workplaces um, and interact with their friends. Um, I think, you know, like I said, it, my, my journey's been changing a lot. Last year when I went to Broadside, um, I think my mind exploded um, and I was exposed to so many different thoughts about feminism. And I think, um, yeah... I think that's part of the reason why I pitched this project is because I have a difficult relationship with it. Um, I definitely call myself a feminist and I definitely wear that on my sleeve, but that's not everyone's experience. Um, and I wanted to explore some of that. We're speaking with Kate Robinson, a feminist in residence at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre, all about her role as she kind of continues um, her residency from home. <laughs> um, and I, I guess, I mean, so many of us are juggling um, competing priorities and, and roles in our lives from our sort of domestic environment at the moment. And, I mean, it sounds like you've got your hands full with the actual residency, but how's it going work-wise for you? I mean, you work in, in family law and, and the kind of family violence sector as a lawyer. How are you kind of managing to to do that from home, and and how does that? What's the experience of that like? I guess it's been a really interesting time. I think we've seen a lot of, um, I guess, um, different leadership styles, um, and and in a crisis, those different styles come out. Um, you know, from an organisational perspective, but also in terms of courts and systems. Um, on an individual level, it's been really hard. I think um, I'm giving family violence advice from home, um, and so that has definitely um, come into a space that it isn't normally in my life, and it's much more difficult for me to separate um, my personal life and my work life when it's all in the same space. Um, and normally my, you know, the room that I'm working in is my craft room. And so it's colourful and it's such a place of joy and I have a beautiful view. Um, and now that's where I'm having these really difficult conversations about family violence. Um, and, and at a really, really difficult time for women who are mm. victim survivors. Um, there's been so much... Um, said about, you know, what we expect is the spike in family violence at the moment and the difficulty for women to access services um, when they're isolated at home with the perpetrators. Um, and so it's a really difficult time to also be a community lawyer as well because um, it's a difficult time for our clients and I care about, you know, giving them the best possible access to justice and advice and I you know, I just know, know that the reality is that isn't happening at the moment. Uh, I, I've just, you're, you've really introduced a new thought into my to my mind there, Kate. I mean, how many people such as yourself are bringing their work into their homes and that, that separation was very important uh, in the past. And I wonder, I mean, what, what are you doing to kind of make that uh, workable for you? Yeah, I think I've been hearing lots of stories from different friends about all of these, the little things that we're doing, um, like really making sure we pack away our computers and that kind of thing at the end of the day. Um, I unfortunately had that approach and um, broke my computer monitor in week two or something because I was so diligently packing it away that I cracked the screen. Um, but so like those kinds of little rituals, um, I think are really important. Um, I have been going on exceptionally long walks along the Maribyrnong <laughs> just to try and to finish my work day with something completely different um, to try and get that perceived separation. Um, it's really interesting because I think when I was thinking about the Feminist Oasis and my project, one of the things that I wanted to do was um, and hopefully will still do, is run sessions with um, 
women um, who work in the Queen Vic Women's Centre and other women's organisations to try and get them to craft together and create things to put in the exhibition. Um, and the, the idea behind that was that I really hate um, the power imbalances that exist between lawyers and our clients. And there's something, I think, inherent in my feminism that means that I have to question those hierarchies and that power imbalance and that difference. And then now I'm in this completely different situation at home where so, so many of the boundaries have been broken, obviously, between myself and my clients. They're in my house, in a sense, not, not literally, but, you know, through the phone. Um, so it's been really interesting for me to reflect on the boundaries that we do have and the reasons for that as well when you're working in a complicated space like family violence. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you sort of talking about these two issues of, of the really complicated and, and, you know, traumatic space of family violence and craft and, um, and sort of, you know, creating artwork, that practice of creating art. What role does that play in your life and sort of balancing those two issues and, and I guess, giving your, yourself the space to work through the real heaviness that you deal with in your, your kind of day-to-day work life? Yeah, I think... I previously worked at another legal centre um, and when I was there, um, one of my colleagues was really into craft and really into creating these incredible different pieces using a lot of polymer clay. Um, And I think that was, we became friends at a time when I was really struggling with, um, you know, balancing these ideas about, and I guess feeling the weight um, of my dissatisfaction with the justice system um, because I came, became a community lawyer because I wanted to create change. Um, and I guess it's more difficult than that. And there's a lot of hierarchies and the court space is very oppressive and hierarchical. And so I was holding all of that alongside, you know, family violence work um, and crafting and creating and exploring this creative side of myself was really a release from that. And I think it's been, there's something so powerful just about sitting down and doing something with your hands and all of a sudden that's the only thing that you're focusing on. And I think for me, I probably sometime when I was a teenager, I, I was taught by someone somewhere that, you know, you either have to be an artist and that is you have to create a perfect piece of work or, you know, craft is just a silly side thing. Um, But now it feels so freeing and it feels really powerful um, and it's just a great escape. And I, I know, um, I mean, if we speak about the justice system, uh, we know there's big challenges in, in family law and family courts and the circuit courts and, and things like that. What are you seeing in this area? Are you, uh, there's some reform underway. Uh, are you feeling kind of positive around some of the directions that are being taken, Kate? Um, I guess. In terms of COVID responses by the courts, it's been really different um, at different courts. Like the Federal Circuit Court has had, or Family Court has had a really different response to magistrates' courts. Um, I think the one that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment um, is magistrates' courts and their responses. Um, Specifically, I think my view is that they've been too slow um, to respond and make changes. And I think what we've seen has been really drastically different approaches across the state, which means that your postcode impacts whether or not um, or what your experience of access to justice during this time has been. Um, And I think, you know, a crisis situation really exacerbates a lot of the infrastructure issues and inefficiencies that these courts have. Um, And I guess, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised Um, that they would have responded in the way that they have because, you know, some magistrates' courts don't have separate entrances or safe areas for women who are victim survivors to to wait. And so I shouldn't have been surprised that then, of course, we wouldn't have been able to dial into court and, you know, make arguments on our clients' behalf. But I guess crisis really brings brings these things to the forefront. And what I'm really hopeful about after this period of time um, and after the crisis starts to, I guess, 
end is the way that we're going to think about these systems and about how we're going to think about changing them. Because I think in the conversations that I'm having with my friends and the people that, you know, surround me, I, I felt this really, you know, radical energy. Um, and I think that it's going to be really fascinating to watch the way that, um, yeah, the way that different organisations um, and different people start to reconceptualise what is normal about the way that we work and the way that we consume health and all and you know inefficiencies in general. Yeah, we hear um, about the new the new normal a lot, don't we? But it's um, interesting. Mm. It'll be interesting to see what is the new normal and what goes back to old normal. Exactly, exactly. And I hope we can keep some of that radical spirit. That's what I really want. I think you know. This is one crisis, but obviously the climate crisis um, is also on the agenda. And so I think we hear a lot from governments um, and different organisations about what is and isn't possible. And this period of time has showed us that we are capable of radically changing the way that we live and the way that we consume. And so, you know, we need to take that forward. And we should ask... um Kate, if people are hearing this and, and wanting to um, craft craft and, and um, think about feminism and contribute to, to what you're putting together, is the Queen Vic um, uh, Women's Centre the place to go for more information about the Feminist in Residence program you're running? Yes. Yes, definitely. So we will, in the coming weeks, um, there's going to be a dedicated Feminist Residence section of the website um, and you'll be able to sign up to receive your in-the-mail, in-person craft kit. <laughs> I want one. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us on Triple R. The inaugural feminist in residence at the Queen Vic Women's Centre is Kate Robinson. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's been wonderful to meet you and, and all the best. And uh, yeah. oh, I should, should ask, when does this end? Is it all year? Um, so the intention was for it to be um, for six months, but um, the Queen Vic Women's Centre has been really lovely in terms of, you know, adapting timelines and things so that I can do in-person workshops um, depending on restrictions. Yeah, and so let's see how that plays out. All the best. Thanks for being with us today on Triple R. Thanks for having me. And uh, also, if you want to, um, if this has raised issues with you, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. And, of course, you can head over to the Feminist in Residence aspect of the Queen Vic Women's Centre when that is up in coming weeks. Triple Ah. You might have heard of the social credit system, which is now well established in China and run by the state. It's where people's day-to-day actions are rated and they're given a social credit score that measures social trustworthiness. It's something many of us would not like to see rolled out in Australia and it might feel impossible for it to be accepted here. However, aspects of this kind of system are arguably already in place. We rate rideshare drivers, we rate accommodation providers, um, there are well-established opaque credit and rental rating systems in place. Dr Niels Walters is Head of Research and Emerging Practice for Social Gallery Melbourne and a Research Fellow in Interactive Design um, Interaction Design at the Design Lab at University of Melbourne and he's a leading AI ethicist here and uh, recently been in China and is sharing his knowledge about social credit systems in a lecture later this week and it's really great to have you with us, Niels, and I suppose if you've um, recently been in China, we should um, ask how long ago that was. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, good morning, Carly and Dylan. Um, well, I've got good news for you. That's about a year and a half ago now. Um, so I assume I am very well. I feel very healthy, to say the least, um, and I'm sure I am still very healthy. Yeah, yeah and, and like the rest of us, I mean, we're in a very fortunate situation in Australia right now, and I suppose we're still standing by to hear what Dan Andrews tells us is possible in Melbourne. But um, let's go to what you're talking about as part of this event coming up on Thursday, um, and perhaps just give us a rundown of, of social credit systems. Uh, I, I know some people will really know a lot about it and other people not so much? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think indeed we, we all fail to understand really what it is. And I think the complex definition is all about um, quantifying our reputation. And I remember back in the early 2000s, there was this online platform that tried to um, yeah put metrics against our kudos, against our online reputation. And it's really that on steroids. So it really tries to positively reinforce 
our behavior as a way to, I guess, yeah, improve society. Now, that sounds really complex and that sounds wrong for something that's, um, yeah, far away from what we deal with on an everyday basis. But as you said in the intro, think about our Uber driver ratings, but also the fact that they rate us. Think about Airbnb. Think about our Qantas status, um, status points. Think about Fitbit credits. Think about Instagram, Fitbit, the numbers of likes, tweets, followers that we aim to achieve. All of that kind of starts to contribute to a social credit system. The big difference in, in the Western world, and I think that's, that's where we are very fortunate, is that it's not governed by one central authority. But realistically, it's only a step, a small step away from that. And so, I mean, how have you gone uh, researching the nature of, of the way in which China has established its social credit system? I mean, is there information that, that is freely available to get a sense of just how widely it's used and to what ends? It's not widely available. There's quite a lot of um, speculation in the media at the moment about how it works, what it's supposed to do. And I think we're starting to see a clear image. And it is indeed about improving society and controlling a really complex society as well with billions of people on a yeah, significant um, landmass. Um, so really the question is how do you control such a society? Um, the only thing we know really is that 2020 is quite a critical year. So this is the year that the social credit system in China should go live and should go live um, for every single citizen as well as every single um, business entity as well as government authorities. So everything, everyone will be assigned a, a, yeah, a numerical score. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a critical year. It's been in development since and that's where the media kind of, this is a bit since either 2011 or 2014, um, but it really brings together all of the algorithms that run in China, as well as all of the surveillance systems. Um, yeah, and it's, it's a really powerful, omnipresent system, really. And so, I mean, like a lot of, um, I suppose you call them innovations um, within China, often they're trialled in different um, parts of the country. And I, I understand that that's what's happened with the social credit system is that it's been sort of tri trialled in, in different, different parts of, of China. What sort of happened, do you know? Like what happens if, you know, say my, I was dependent on, on somebody like my mother and, and and she got a bad system, does that flow through to my score or does it affect what I can do? I mean, how does it actually play out in everyday life, do we know? That's, that's a really good question. It's, it's a very opaque system. Nobody really understands how it works, um, but it is becoming clear that the scores of your friends and family, they will affect your score as well. Um, and in a way, that's not very different from how our uh, yeah, network of friends on Facebook or Twitter is kind of influencing our sort of um, position in life, in a way. Um, the difference in China, obviously, is that your social credit score also affects your freedom to move in the country. So if your score falls below a certain threshold, um, you might be prevented from traveling uh, by plane or using the high-speed train network, which for a country as big as China and with yeah, families spread across the entire country, it, it, that starts to become a pretty significant problem. And, I mean, as we've touched on, there's an element of social credits um, already sort of, you know, firmly entrenched in our everyday lives. Often, you know, willingly there's, there's um, a certain status attached to how we present ourselves um, on social media platforms and all that sort of stuff. And there's those sort of peer reviewing processes we touched on earlier. But what's your sense of how much we as a public are, you know, vigilant uh, about the extent to which we, we are aware of what's kind of too much um, social credit within our society? And, and what's a level that we're kind of comfortable with? Yeah, that's really the message I want to give um, it, whenever I talk about social credit as well as on Thursday. I think um, we're at risk of sacrificing a lot of personal privacy for the sake of convenience. Um, like I said, we do rate our Uber drivers, and I think today that's mostly our Uber Eats drivers. Um, but I think that's, that's challenging. Um, we're influencing these people's uh, yeah, career in a way as well. Because um, again, if they fall below a certain threshold, they'll probably be um, yeah removed from the Uber system at all. 
Um, and I think that's, that's really something that as a society we need to reflect carefully about. Is this indeed something we want? Um, is this only something we want for particular groups of people that, that um, work in certain sectors? Or is this also something that we would want for ourselves in the jobs that we have on a daily basis? Um, and where do we start drawing the lines? Um, do we realize that enough indeed that it's fairly simple to set up your own personal social credit system if you run a business? Um, yeah, and is that really something we want moving forward? Yeah, and we know that uh, all sorts of review systems and product reviews online and the like, you know, people people game them uh, and put positive reviews for their own products in different yeah. names and that sort of thing. So with regards to, you know, what you know of social credit systems, can that happen as well where people that understand the technology well can play it? Look, it's technology, so you can always play it and game it. So I think the way how China is rolling it out at the moment, it's becoming more and more complex uh, to, to game it um, because there the system is um, yeah really closely connected to its um, national surveillance and, and CCTV network. Um, and obviously all of these cameras can identify you just from looking at your face. So there it becomes really, really challenging to trick the system into thinking that you're someone else or doing completely different things. Um, and again, I think also for us moving forward, that's something uh, that we really need to think about. Our cameras will become more and more intelligent as we move forward. Um, and yeah, is this something we want? And I mean, you've also built um, the, the biometric mirror system at the University of Melbourne, which uh, kind of allows users to input their facial data and be kind of, um, you know, fed back information around their level of attractiveness and, and their age and, um, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, what did you learn from that process in terms of the accuracy or the biases that are built into these types of AI systems? Yeah, so when we started building that system, we were aware that a lot of AI and facial recognition systems, sorry, um, they are biased just by design simply because the data is often um, yeah, incomplete or insufficient. So what we really wanted to do is expose that to the wider public and then learn from them as well as to what they really know about um, facial recognition systems, artificial intelligence. And perhaps unsurprisingly, a lot of people simply don't understand how facial recognition works. Um, obviously, we're not expecting them to work how uh, neural networks work or how machine learning models in the cloud work. But we would expect them to, to know a little bit more um, about, I guess, where the limitations and the opportunities of these systems lie. But surprisingly, a lot of people walked away from Biometric Mirror and said, look, you know what, it's a computer that tells me that um, I'm attractive and very irresponsible on a Monday morning. It must be right, because it's a computer, it's a clever thing. And I think that's really, uh, yeah, an important takeaway for us as a society, that there is a lot of opportunity in the education system um, for young people to be really made aware that computers are only computers, and computers are made by us, by humans. So they would have all the mistakes, biases and, yeah, misconceptions that we have as well. Uh, Dr. Niels Walters is with us and uh, he's presenting um, a lecture, I'm calling it, but an event, online event as part of Knowledge Melbourne Conversation on social credit systems and we're picking his brains about the system that we know is um, you know, potentially about to roll out in, in China but also where we're kind of dipping our toes into it here um, in more private um, systems, I suppose, through rating you know, drivers and, and delivery companies and, and that sort of thing. And I wonder, I mean, because we are in a pandemic environment, Niels, how well does um, facial recognition work when you've got a mask on because I, I suppose around the world in different countries people are more or less comfortable wearing masks but I imagine if yeah. you if you know you're being captured on camera at every corner as you walk around the streets you might be more comfortable wearing such a thing. That's a really good question. Um, I read a press release about two or three weeks ago from a startup in China that has uh, apparently developed a system that can identify you even when you are wearing a mask. Um, or it can identify when you're not wearing a mask. And again, that could flag as someone who is, I guess, yeah, dodging all of the, the security regulations that are currently in place. So to answer your question, I think facial recognition systems, the functionality is endless. We can identify everything. Just the thing we need to keep in mind is what's, uh, what's the margin of error. 
And we're living in a time as well where, you know, quite a lot of Australians have raised concerns about downloading the COVID Safe app to um, kind of, you know, gauge uh, transmission of the coronavirus uh, around Australia. So it feels like there's not sort of necessarily a high level of trust in exactly how the government handles our data. And you could look to kind of the census debacle and RoboDebt and a range of um, iterations of a kind of digital infrastructure breakdown in this country. But what's your sense of, of how it will be received if these types of social credit systems are sort of rolled out on a wider basis or facial recognition is rolled out on a wider basis um, by governments and sort of security forces and so on? Look, I think we're very fortunate that we live in a Western democracy. I don't see our governments, uh, and I'm talking about Australia as well as Europe and, and, and North America, to roll out social credit system as a, as a, as a government. Um, I think it'll be a lot more concealed, um, yeah, behind major corporations, multinationals mm-hmm. um, that sell us a service or a product that makes our lives so much more convenient. Um, but by adopting that, we actually sacrifice a lot of our privacy and, yeah, personal rights. Well, if you want to go along and hear more about this, um, the event's happening live at 2pm on Thursday, the 14th of May, and you can register via Try Booking um, with Knowledge Melbourne. You can watch it um, live, I understand, on Facebook without having to register. You can just jump on and uh, check out the event with uh, Dr Niels Welters. And um, I suppose it's your chance to tell us what, how it's going to run. Niels, have you worked out the approach um, bringing this into the, the digital space? Well, this is a new world for a lot of us, or for many of us. Um, I'm really intrigued by this uh, yeah, opportunity to do it digitally. I think it's quite ironic as well that it will be on Facebook, which is probably, <laughs> which comes very close to the social credit system we're all getting used to slowly. Um, so that's an interesting one. Um, I'm actually hoping to do a, a large experiment as well as part of the um, talk where um, I invite everyone who's uh, attending to go through a biometric mirror scan uh, and then we'll talk about these results. So, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about that as well. Yeah, that sounds really good. Well, I give you five out of five for this conversation <laughs> and um, I'm sure with such high trust we'll get you on again on 3RRR. Thanks for that. You're wonderful. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr Niels Welt is their Head of Research and Emerging Practice for Science Gallery Melbourne. He's also over at Design Lab at the University of Melbourne. And if you are interested, um, check out Knowledge Melbourne Conversations and you can take part on Thursday with what's going to be quite an interesting experiment, I think. And when you put experiment and AI together, I don't know what that means, but I think it's going to be pretty fascinating. I did try with a friend who had um, kind of a facial recognition app on his phone trying to make ourselves look younger because he was getting a about sort of 40 when he was about 32 yeah, so or something. Old. And I was, <laughs> I was getting only a few years below as well. We found if you um, make kind of a more serious or angry face, our age was reduced. So go figure. Well, my kids made me look like a like a man the other day. And I, I actually really did look like my brother. And, you know, beard and everything was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.